The thing about the Name Your Price tool from Progressive is that by now you've heard a lot of ads about the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. We probably don't even need the words, the Name Your Price tool, to tell you that our humpback whale pup gives you options based on your budget. Or that our novelty hand buzzer helps you save on car insurance. And that's the thing about the tiny felt bag filled with marbles. At this point, you've heard a lot of ads about the elusive northern bobcat. The Name Your Price tool. <clears throat> the neighbor who baked you banana bread. Only from Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When it comes to working at GEICO, our best advocates are our employees, like Maxine. But since she's so focused on growing her career, we hired an actor to read her story. At GEICO, I love mentoring the new associates to help them make this a career and not just a job. And with new opportunities and job stability, GEICO has been helping people grow their careers for over 75 years. The only downside? She still hasn't met the gecko. Where are you, fella? Ready to start your career, Kansas City? We're hiring claim sales and service agents. Apply online today at geico.job slash Kansas City. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Kaiju Curry House. I am your host, Joe, and I am joined tonight with Alex. Good evening. Paul. Hello. And our very special guest, Mr. John Walsh. Hello, good evening. John, um, I would like you to describe uh, your line of work to our listeners, as I think it's a very special thing in the industry that you get to do. And uh, please, by all means, tell us about the new book, which has recently come out. Well, I'm a filmmaker uh, by day. And uh, if you like, by night or under uh, another guise, I'm a trustee of the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. So for most of your listeners, I'd imagine you know who Ray Harryhausen is. And I've known Ray Harryhausen for some years now. I met him when I was 18, when I was a student at the London Film School. In uh, more recent years, he asked me to become a trustee of his foundation. And that foundation looks after all of the creatures from the films that you've seen, uh, some of the creatures that you haven't seen from films he didn't make, and all the paraphernalia that goes with making a film, because he was essentially a producer on his own films. So the Harryhausen Foundation is the largest of its kind outside of the Walt Disney Company, with over 50,000 items. And I've mo- most recently just uh, written a book, which was published uh, last week, called Harryhausen, The Lost Movies. And it contains the films that Ray didn't make in sort of three loose categories. And what are those categories, please? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. So, uh, <laughs> so the three categories are um, the films he developed that he didn't make, uh, the films he was offered and turned down, it's always fascinating to see the outside view of the world by the uh, the offer someone gets. And then scenes cut from the films that we know and love. So there was a different pre-title sequence planned for Clash of the Titans. Um, the skeleton sequence was going to be very different in Jason and the Argonauts. And in most cases, for most filmmakers, they might have scraps of paper or scripts pages. But for us at the Foundation, because it's such a visual medium, special effects, we have test footage, we have sketches, paintings, we have models and mouldings and maquettes. So we have all sorts of mixed media that's, uh, that's in the book. We didn't get everything in, but we've included every one of the films. And we have lots of new images and artwork that hasn't been seen for, in some cases, nearly 50 or 60 years. Wow. That is absolutely brilliant. 
And what's the reception been like to the launch of your book? Because I understand you were at the Forbidden Planet in London at their headquarters. That's right. So we did a signing on Sunday at the Forbidden Planets. That was very successful. And it nicely coincided with a screening I was having uh, two hours later at the Regent Street Cinema, also in London, where we unveiled the uh, the world premiere of the 4K restored Seventh Voyage of Sinbad from 1958. And that played to a packed house. And then following that, it's a shame you guys missed that. You should have been there. Uh, following that, there was a special presentation, which was a repeat of my San Diego Comic-Con presentation from this year, where I, I go into some detail with the book, some of the images and some of the test footage, and reveal some of the behind-the-scenes stories of why Ray turned things down and why films didn't happen. So it was it was very good, and we had a Q&A as well with that. Now, that's all been filmed. Um, the the, uh, the signing of the book was filmed, as these things often are, yes. and that's online. And the actual long-form talk and Q&A where I was joined by Vanessa Harryhausen on stage. That's all been filmed and will be online for free in the next week or so. That is brilliant. Yeah, great. No, that, that's splendid. And where could where could our listeners find this, um, the, the video um, montage? Where can they actually find it, if you say? Um, well, if they go to rayharryhausen.com, that's the website, um, you can find our social media links. And we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And also iTunes, the Ray Harryhausen podcast. So we're quite easy to find. We have all the various blue ticks, so you know that we're the real deal. And, you know, if you Google us in the search engine, you pretty much find all of that uh, pretty much straight away. We've done about 27 episodes now of our podcast. We've been nominated for various awards, the People's Choice Award, a few years running. I think we won it one year, I'm not sure. Um, And uh, we reveal in those podcasts audio recordings I made with Ray Harryhausen that haven't been heard before. And we celebrate his films, the anniversaries, any special news, the making of the book. We've done a special series about the music from Ray Harryhausen's films. And even that contains lost material. So we'll be unveiling some very special lost material from the music of Ray's films just before Christmas. I think it, you know, it's one of those things, Ray Harryhausen, he's just known for being a prolific artist. He just apparently never seemed to stop, did he? I mean, I, I I only wonder how much time it's taken to catalog all of these things that he had. I've heard a few, you know, like urban myths, as it were, that you could go into his home and you'd see the dragon from the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad just kind of tucked away somewhere. Just you know, just <laughs> all of these absolutely priceless cinema artifacts, and they're just everywhere, just kind of like all about his house. And there was like apparently no rhyme or reason to it. Is that true, or can you comment? Yeah, that's true. I um, I was 18 when I contacted him. I opened up the London telephone directory in the days before the internet and mobile phone. And I um, he was listed. He was listed the only R. Harryhausen in the London telephone directory. And I was a student at the London Film School for my third term course. I was looking to make a 16mm documentary. And I thought it might be interesting to do something with him because I'd heard the rumours too that he lived amongst all the creatures. So made the call. He answered... He sounded very much like Charleston Heston. He had a very deep uh, Midwestern uh, yeah, accent. Yeah, he totally did. And uh, so we, we struck it. We hit it off and uh, I went down to the house. And yes, I did get to see all of the creatures in the various cabinets. Um, the house, he didn't shoot anything in the house. It was a big house. But he did used to construct some of the creatures and do repairs there. But he, he kept as many of them as he could. I mean, there was so much more material. We'd like to go back in a in a Doctor Who TARDIS and collect 
things we don't have. But most filmmakers were um, were quite good at throwing things away. So Ray was very good at holding on to absolutely everything he possibly could. So it helps to have a big, big house. That's crazy. Oh yeah, I mean, some. Could you imagine that? It would probably look like my office. To be fair, <laughs> would, yeah, yeah, your office for the whole house of just this amazing collection. Of, oh. John, I'm sorry, I apologize. This is kind of like an inside thing. Um, Paul and Alex have been to my office, and uh, there are monsters and creatures, I guess you could say, new and old of every variety, scientific and otherwise, just strewn about, you know, with fossils and books and all manner of things. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I, I I wish I could have met Ray. I have totally a kindred spirit because just the art, just like the things he found interesting. And I recently uh, have watched a couple documentaries on him because there's always. It seems like there's a new one out every few years. But um, Ray Harryhausen Titan of Special Effects. You, I'm sure you're familiar with that one, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that one. And then um, there was another one that I watched relatively recently. Um, but I really like the second one. I'm going to forget its name, and I apologize to all the listeners. I'll dig it up for the description. But uh, wasn't my one, was it? Um, I made a documentary about him when I was 18. Oh, I, I, unfortunately, I don't think it was that one. But um, it was the best one. Well, sorry, I will watch yours though. I, I will. I'm hungry for any type of uh, information I can get on the subject. But uh, I really liked it because it had interviews with him and Ray Bradbury. But they didn't exact exactly uh, keep them, you know, in the same room when they talked to them. Um, oh. They they, uh, they had them talking about each other, and it was really funny. It's like if you took like a married couple and put them in separate rooms and ask them, what do you think about so-and-so? It was just brilliant, some of the things that they spouted off. But I think my favorite story was the uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, how um, some uh, film producers came to Ray about the special effects. Ray kind of recognized the story a little bit and said, oh, I, I think I know a fellow you should talk to about the screenplay of that. And then, you know, lo and behold, his friend, he was like, oh, yeah, I wrote something about this uh, relatively recently. And then Warner Brothers dug it up and like, oh, crap, you know, we were going to do this and not even give the guy credit. So, you know, hastily they wrote a letter saying, can we use your uh, story? And then, you know, like they ended up working together on that picture, you know, the foghorn obviously being the uh, inspiration for Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. But it was just that funny little bit of insider history of how those two were so interconnected, even from a young age. And they just went on and on and on with friendship for years and years. I think when Ray it was the award that Tom Hanks gave him, I want to say it was an Oscar, but, um, you know, they were there together for that as well. And they were just introducing each other. And it was such a fabulous friendship, but just all of that brilliant stuff that went on in their lives. Just, you know, it was a different era, you know, just where art and imagination, it was just, it was at the peak with him, wasn't it? I mean, it, he was absolutely fantastic person. And I'm quite envious that you got to know him. Do you have any great, like, Ray stories from like when you first met him or anything? Um, well, there's kind of domestic situation where he kind of liked banana cake. So anytime I'd visit him, his wife would, uh, make tea and I'd, I'd eat banana cake with him which was uh which was nice you know that's I like so any, great any cake. um he, he was a very kind of in an industry that's full of takers he was very much a man who gave of his time and of his patience so if he was contacted by fans such as myself who wanted to make a film i can't imagine today ringing someone up of his stature and getting straight through to him on his home number now you're going through layers of representatives and managers and so on whereas you know 
if he recognised someone had talent and had interest, then he had the patience for it. You know, he was contacted by a young man in the early 1960s who sent him a full head mask of the Cyclops from Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And Ray was so impressed, he wrote back to him and said, yes, great work, continue what you're doing. Anyway, now all these many years later, uh, that young man was Rick Baker. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's amazing. And there's a similar story that goes with a young man who was an animator who ended up Phil Tippett. Yeah, Phil. We know, totally, yeah. Industrial Light and Magic, you know, created uh, all those wonderful Tauntaun and Asat sequences, Dragon Slayer. He worked as a development special effects director on Jurassic Park. So, you know, Ray did recognize talent when it came along. But even people who were just fanboys, he would happily sort of chat with them. Um, interestingly, though, you mentioned Ray Bradbury. Um, both the Rays knew each other really well. Bradbury is 100 next year, so both Rays celebrate their centenary in uh, 2020. And it was, interestingly, the very last film I found for my book um, involved Ray Bradbury. So uh, that that was fascinating. It's uh, The Beast and 20 Tower of Fathoms, as you mentioned. Uh, a well-known director was watching that and saw that it was based on a uh, Ray Bradbury short story. Mm-hmm. It was John Huston. So he invited Ray Bradbury to come and write the screenplay on Moby Dick. So we found some scraps of paper in the archive and it was some special effects test storyboard thumbnails that Ray Harryhausen had created to try and uh, simulate the great white whale breaking through the waves and attacking <laughs> the sailors. Um, the reason it didn't happen... It would have been the water? Because I can imagine water doesn't behave no, for stop no. motion. Yeah, no, no, it would have been fine because for stop motion, if you think about um, Beast and 20,000 Fathoms and it came from beneath the sea, Ray actually would front project uh, live action water, full scale water, um, in the end, uh, Houston did it with a kind of a large whale piece and then small whale models. No, the reason it didn't actually happen was because Bradbury and Houston fought like cat and dog on that film um, because they were both very similar personalities. Both great men, but very forceful characters. Uh, so much so that Ray Bradbury wrote a book all about his arguments with John Houston in the <laughs> 1990s. Um, so he just didn't want to introduce his friendship that he built up with Ray Harryhausen over the years to that um, that fire pit because um, it's surely you know so many friendships have been destroyed by people making films together. So it was very sensible. But uh, the very last film I found for the book, publisher said to me, John, how many films do you think will be in this lost movies book? And I said, oh, about forty-five, maybe fifty. There was eighty in the end. Oh Lord! So a lot <laughs> of films qualified for for inclusion. Oh. All right, I'm going to be really cheeky, and I'm going to ask you if one if one story got into there. And um, I, I hope I, I beg your indulgence. A sound of thunder would that have come in there? No. Oh, okay. Okay. It's been one that I would have been interested in. You know, just hearing to see. Obviously, I'm, I take it you're probably familiar with the plot of that one, and it would have definitely been up Ray's alley, so to speak. So, just out of curiosity, but. Um, that's brilliant. Oh, man, I'm totally getting that book. Uh, one of the other things that I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned this before, you know, as part of the foundation and trustee, you are tasked with um, keeping all of his models and artifacts uh, tip top. So with the models, uh, it was a question that um, came up in one of our discussions previously. The models, were, we're all kind of familiar with how they're made, but how do you keep them from falling apart so to speak like what's the process for that can you tell us yes well different models are in different states of decay 
effectively. So if you think about um, a rubber band, if you left a rubber band um, on a windowsill for a couple of weeks and went back to it, it would all have deteriorated and all of the oils would have gone out of it. So the creatures have reacted like that to the atmosphere. Um, our conservator, Alan Friswell, said to me that if Ray had put them in a fridge, just a standard domestic fridge from day one, then they wouldn't have deteriorated at all. Um, but the models were really only made to last the sort of two years or so of principal photography. So the fact we have them, any of them at all, is, is marvellous. They're very heavy. They're quite robust. They have a metal skeleton inside, mm-hmm. often stainless steel, so a ball and socket joint. And then built up over that are layers of um, effectively different types of rubber and latex. And some of the creatures have real hair on them as well. I think there's a woolly mammoth, right? There's a, yes, woolly mammoth. There's, you know, if you think Pegasus, you think the baboon and I, the tiger, there's a lot of hair on a lot of these creatures. Mm. And some of them aren't, um, or some of the, the, the compounds that you use to create the, uh, the liquid latex is no longer legal. So you can't recreate uh, it for health oh. and safety reasons. And then some of the, uh, the pelts that are used, the skins, if you will, for some of the creatures on the baboon in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, it's real baboon. Oh, wow. Oh, dear. <laughs> Sign of the times. Exactly. If you need a hair transplant now, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. You would not be allowed to re- use real baboon. Yeah. I'm sure the Museum of Natural History in London might be willing to spare like one or two snippets. <laughs> the <share> some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, would it be suitable? I'm not sure. So it means when the baboon travels and goes through customs, it can be a bit of an issue. Um, but the conserving of the pieces is, is, is fascinating because different creatures have deteriorated at different rates and it's not always connected to the age of the creatures. And then some of them, quite strangely, have hardly deteriorated at all, such as Medusa from Clash of the Titans. I saw her recently, yeah. uh, a picture that was posted on Facebook. She looks pristine. Mm. She really does. It's it's strange. What can I say? That is quite spooky. She looks like a remodel, like someone's built that. As a, It doesn't look like it's the original. It looks in such good condition. I was a bit baffled by that. Yes. I mean, she's, she's had very little um, to, in terms of trauma to her, and she's had very little restoration if at all. I think she hasn't had any restoration That's... yet. There's, we have them kind of queued up in the order of who needs it most. It's because all the most beautiful women age well, isn't it? That's what it is. Oh, that well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. You know, and uh, I haven't had a chance to look directly into her eyes to find oh. out if that's the truth. <laughs> um, but, um, John, you said shortly before we uh, started recording that uh, you know I, I could kind of ask the the awkward questions. Um, sure. For our listeners, for them to appreciate, um, how expensive, or rather, just is this very expensive for you to curate and preserve all of these pieces? Yes, I mean effectively, we're although we are our, our physical size is large. The foundation is very small in terms of personnel. Yeah. So we have one permanent member of staff, Connor Heaney, who's our collections manager, um, and then it's myself, Vanessa Harryhausen, Ray's daughter, and Simon McIntosh, who's our legal advisor and has been the family solicitor for for decades. So between the three of us, we make decisions. And when I came on board as a trustee, my first kind of priority was to kind of raise money through new books which is this is the second one lost movies yes and you know when you buy a book you're saving a potentially one of the kraken's toenails perhaps you know um and i do public speaking as well we do public speaking engagements at film festivals um, at conventions and so on and we we receive speaking fees for that and we receive fees when we loan uh collections to museums we have one 
single piece at Greenwich Museum, my hometown. Uh, they had a special moon exhibit celebrating 50 years of man landing on the moon. And they have the original Grand Lunar from First Men in the Moon, who's been fully restored, on his golden crystal throne. And it's been the most popular exhibit, despite the fact they've got lots of NASA goodies in there. It's wonderful, isn't it? I thought you were about to say that there is a moon calf, but I figured that wouldn't have been quite the same. There is a moon calf. We have that um, too. But, um, you know, these are the ways in which we we raise money for the the collection. Um, But there is a a, a more nuclear option of raising money, which is is something we've uh, undertaken since I've become a trustee. And that's to revive Ray's films themselves. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier 4K restoration, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. That is on my hit list now of things to get. So um, I haven't actually heard or seen too much about that. I suppose it's because I already own it. But um, will this be re-released in the UK anytime soon so that people can purchase it? Or is it already out? Uh, can you give any details? There's, there hasn't been a 4K release yet. And we're speaking to Sony about next year doing something special. Four of Ray's films have been scanned in 4K. Seventh mm-hmm. Voyage, Three Worlds of Gulliver, First Men in the Moon, and Jason and the Argonauts. And so we had a screening last year of the 4K for First Men in the Moon. And we're hoping that for a UHD 4K disc release for all, all four of those for next year, along with hopefully the others who uh, will get 4K treatments. So how do the um, how do the effects hold up under, under 4K? Because I would have thought that would reveal... More of the um, well, the, you know, the signs that it's obviously stop motion. What, but does it not reveal the blemish? Reveal the blemish. Yeah, you know, the, the higher the the resolution, it tends to you know break the illusion sometimes. Well, it's kind of a yes and no answer. So if if you think about um, the way we would have watched them on television or in cinemas from a print, a print is sort of three generations down. So even a a, a, a new print you would have seen of Golden Voyage Sinbad would have been three generations away from the original camera neg. So the 4K scans are from the original camera neg. So even these are sharper than what you would have seen back then. Uh, the, the sort of two reveals, if you will, that's, that spoil the illusion are if you can see where the miniature rear projection is, or if you can see any form of wires that are holding yes, the creatures yeah. up. Now, the miniature rear projections don't tend to be much of a problem because regardless of the quality of the foreground or the background, they, they both tend to hold up. Um, I was with Ray in his kitchen when he got a call from um, Grover Crisp. It's a marvellous name, Grover Crisp. It sounds like a new cereal, doesn't it, from <laughs> Cadbury's or someone. Uh, but Grover Crisp is the uh, the head of restoration for Columbia Pictures at the Sony Archive. And he'd spoken to Ray about the restoration of Jason and the Argonauts. And Ray came off the phone and said to me, Oh, I think I'm going to take the strings out of the heartbeat sequence. And I was like, Oh, really? He said, yeah, I've, I've had uh, Grover Crisp on the phone and uh, he said that I can digitally remove them. What do you think? I don't know what to say. No, like, don't do that. No, exactly. I thought if the scratch is absolutely stabilize the frame completely, give it stereo sound, that's, that's fine too. But to start removing, um, I mean, they've removed surface gauges that have flash frame into some of the films like um, Seven Voyages Sinbad. But to remove strings, I just think that's a little... That's one step too far for me. That's um, getting a bit George Lucas-esque. I just, you know, I, I, yeah, absolutely. And I just think, oh, uh, I wouldn't want to see that. You know, I've just bought the Blu-K, the Blu-K, uh, the, Blue K, the, the uh, Blu-ray of, of um, The Black Hole, which I haven't watched yet. I'm hoping they haven't done too much digital string removal in that because half the fun is sometimes seeing how it's done. 
Dynamation ages very well. <laughs> Just leave it at that. But yeah. it's, part, it's part of the magic. It is. With Mark Gates from the League of Gentlemen, because League of Gentlemen are part of Ray's legacy. They asked him to mm. uh, make a film or be involved in the League of Gentlemen's Apocalypse. And for an interview he gave in one of our recent podcasts, he said that he was watching Alien 3 recently and the, the special effects he thought looked terrible. But he watched the original Alien uh, not long after and he thought it held it up really well. Um, both the, the sort of spaceship effects and the creature effects. So I, th- I think there is a, a place and time in history for Dynamation where it's it sort of transcends, if you like, advances in technology and exists as its own genre. I really like what Ray did. I think that the stop motion has its own special place. Um, to give you an idea, so My Little Girl's Five and Seventh Voyage of Sinbad is what she refers to as the genie movie that's that's her takeaway from it so there are points of that movie you know we, we have dragons we have a cyclops fighting we have a two-headed rock i mean all these fabulous things that have been put together and some of it you know you could think if that was done with current like say jurassic park level cgi maybe perhaps it would be too scary for a five-year-old but because it's been done with stop motion it i feel like part of it is just the movie magic too but because it's stop motion, she knows it isn't real, but she knows the movie isn't real anyway. And I think that it's not real enough to scare her, but it's certainly real enough for her to enjoy. It's like a fairy tale that's come to life. You know, like if the pages in a book started moving, it's like watching, I mean, you mentioned Disney earlier, you know, like saying like Disney's animated feature films, like you care about the characters just because of the artistry that's been put into it. And I think that all the live action Harry Hausen films that I've shown her, she's really enjoyed, but none of it scared her and none of it's given her the heebie-jeebies. And I think it's partially because the mind registers, it's not quite real, but boy, it looks great and this is fun. I think that's a spe- that's the special part of it. That That's the balance to be had because I remember as a little boy watching Clash of the Titans and I remember almost getting the heebie-jeebies when there's the awful shriek from the vulture as it's landing i just thought it was very otherworldly and just really peculiar and then the first time you see calibos it it wasn't the point when you see his face that i got kind of a little bit spooked it was actually that wonderful uh, point when he's being deformed and the shadow changes and i rewatched that on um on blu-ray recently and i genuinely got goosebumps again for the first time in years and it just it's the simplicity of it but it's that's the magic behind it and i think to kind of ramp it up with uh, far greater special effects, it would make it sterile as an experience for me. If that doesn't sound too pretentious. No, no. I, mean, I think you're right. It's, I think through stop motion animation, it's more fascinating than terrifying. Whereas if it was CGI now, it probably would be on the darker, hmm. scarier scale that you know would would lose what you know that yeah. what we grew up with. Gentlemen. Ca- can we, t- can we take a break and we'll return shortly? Hello, everyone. This is Ray from the Heroes Podcast Network. Currently, you've probably heard me on a show called Screen Heroes, where we discuss movies and uh, TV shows about superhero, sci-fi, and a little bit of fantasy. Well, I love fantasy so much, I am starting a brand new podcast about fantasy television series. We are going to review 
These series, in a bit more detail than what Screen Heroes usually does, will discuss multiple episodes for a whole continuous arc and then move on to another series. Spellbound will review shows, new shows like The Witcher, Good Omens, Carnival Row, and Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. We're also going to look back at previous shows such as American Gods and Avatar The Last Airbender, old miniseries from the 90s like Leprechauns and the Tenth Kingdom, and we're going to do a movie here and there, maybe even a little bit of fantasy upcoming news. Who knows? You'll be able to follow Spellbound at SpellboundCast on Twitter for the latest fantasy news about the show, about the upcoming shows that we'll be discussing. You can also listen to us Fridays, coming in September. Hello and welcome back to Kaiju Curry House. I'm one of your hosts, Paul, and joining me today we've had Joe, Alex, and our special guest, John Walsh, who is here to discuss Ray Harryhausen, all his fabulous films, and to promote a new book that he has out. A book? A book? What, any, what, any book? Good, good, good grief, Paul. For heaven's sake. Right, we'll try that again. Sorry, um, Alex, this is why you normally do the transitions. Dear, dear Lord. Um, John, uh, John Walsh has recently released a book. Uh, John, can you give us the title of that book, please? Well, it's the, uh, it's the must-have for this Christmas. It's Harryhausen, The Lost Movies. And it's available through Titan Books and Amazon. And uh, it's selling out very fast. Um, from what I've heard, there's already talks about what we're going to do for the uh, for the reprints. So if you do want that all-important first edition, you do need to get hold of that pretty quick sharpish. And if you hear any clicks through the podcast recording, that's just everyone loading up Amazon <laughs> while we chat. You know. no, I've that, already that's... ordered it. <laughs> yeah. There, well, oh, I, I, I've hung fire because I'm going to try and charm um, a signed copy of you, John, because I'm oh, shameless. Um, there you go. Sly. Yeah, I'm, I'm bold. Um, what we were saying just before we returned, when we took a break, was we were saying about how it, um, in your words, John, how personal and uh, fixed people's views are on stop motion. Did I, did I quote you right there? Yes, that's right. And one of you said, oh, it, it should come back. It never went away. You know, stop motion animation, once it arrived properly um, in the 60s and 70s, it stayed with us for commercials, for children's television. And in cinema, um, it's never been more commercially viable than it is now. So if we think of Kubo and the Two Strings, Isle of Dogs, all those wonderful stop motions from Tim Burton, Nightmare Before Christmas, Frank and Weenie, James and the Giant Peach, um, they compete on the same level as Pixar films and studios really get behind them. Um, one of the reasons we've we've delved back into Ray's unmade films to see if there's something we can do there to bring some of Ray's films back. And a year and a half ago, I set up an agreement with Morningside Films, which was Charles Schneer's company, which still exists. Sadly, Charles Schneer's not with us anymore. But we set up a new company at the foundation called Ray Harryhausen Films, and we're officially in development now with the unmade Force of the Trojans, which would have been the follow-up film after Clash of the Titans. and should have hit cinemas in 1984, and the story of why it didn't is all in the book, the artwork and so on, and the sort of the political machinations are all there. But now we feel that maybe now is the right time. If we think of what Netflix is doing successfully with Dark Crystal. Oh, yeah. Um, even Disney are, are looking back on their old animated catalogue and, and remaking Lion King and Cinderella and these films and so on. 
Those aren't necessarily working, by the way. <laughs> well, they're making yeah, money. Yeah, so. they are. Yeah, true. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. The fair first enough. And last measure. Yeah, the first and last measure from executives is, did it make money? Has it made its money back? As for whether, you know, we like it or don't like it, we think it's trampled on our childhood, it's entirely irrelevant. The remake of Clash of the Titans and its first that a sequel, yeah, wrath so. of the, yeah, and its wrath of the Titans collectively made just under a billion dollars, a billion dollars at the box office. So when you add on ancillaries such as um, television rights and DVD and what have you, you can add another sort of twenty five percent to that. People didn't like, you know, what what I'm hearing. People didn't like the remake of Clash of the Titans, and it made them re- reassess Ray's film, which was good. It was a good thing. But you know, if the foundation only had sort of ten percent of that action, it would mean now today we don't have a Ray Harryhouse museum built because ultimately that's the aim of of all of these wonderful works that we're doing at the foundation is to try and create a museum of animation for Ray's collection that people come and visit and have an animation school actively within that museum and a place to see all of Ray's films in 4K. And it all takes money, but um, the best place for us to raise money is to do what Ray would do and make some of these unmade films. I'm sold. <laughs> make them, make them. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to ask some more questions here. So you've probably had more than the average person's exposure to all of Ray's props um, and the creatures. So I'm going to go ahead and ask a very you know blunt question. Why not? What's your favorite one? Well, my favorite one was the one that appears in my little film school documentary. Um, I made a film called Ray Harryhausen Movement into Life. And what frustrates me by all of the other films that have been made up to that point was you never really saw Ray animating the creatures and he was kind of interviewed separately. Then they'd show a clip and then sometimes there'd be a cutaway to one of the models. I wanted to kind of recreate the research that Ray did. and I wanted to use one of the creatures that people would most recognize. So I chose the Kraken from Clash of the Titans. Uh, the main Kraken model, there was two that were used in the film for animation purposes, um, but it's the fully articulate one with, with, uh, with, with its tail and so on. And that's always had a, had, a, had a soft spot in my heart, Kraken. And he's just recently been restored. Um, we've done an MRI scan of him and 3D mapping of him before he was restored. And now we're going to do it again since he's been restored so that we can kind of uh, show before and after. But um, he was right up there on my list of, of, of uh, creatures that need a, a bit of TLC. He had everything going on too. I mean, between the tentacly arms, the face, you know, the torso, you know, the tail. I mean, six pack. Yeah, yeah, he's he's ripped. There we go. That's what you get when you <laughs> swim all day. But um, no, that 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 is a great model. If I was going to call out my favorite, it would probably be the Redosaurus. I like that one. It's just, for me that just screams. You know what I what I, I grew up with. I think a short or a close second would probably be Guangi. Or Guanji, depending upon where you're from. I love him too. Everybody loves a blue Allosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, Alloranus. <laughs> but well, he originally wasn't blue or purple. It's just part of the way that the film came out. You know, it's 50 years of of, of Guanji this year, and the value of Guanji is officially 50 mm-hmm. this year. For those of our listeners who have not seen the Valley of Guanji, 
It is cowboys and dinosaurs, and it is incredible. You should watch it. I think one of the uh, visually striking things that... uh When we made our new McDonald's spicy chicken McNuggets, you were praise hands emoji. Then we ran out, and you were streaming tears emoji. Now they're back, so you can be grinning face with sweat emoji. Order ahead on the McDonald's app. For a limited time at participating McDonald's. Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So, three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24-monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at T-Mobile.com. Uh, happened in that film is you have cowboys actually uh, lassoing a uh, theropod dinosaur. And what Ray did uh, is he managed to get the live action ropes lined up with his stop motion ropes. And there was a lot of uh, play with that, as I understand it. There, It's in both the documentaries that we've already uh, mentioned in here. But uh, it's just the marrying up of those ropes while the horses are running around, while the dinosaurs thrashing back and forth. In addition to animating the dinosaur, the ropes were also being animated, and all of this had to be lighted the correct way, and it had to look natural. And that is part of the art that makes this gentleman so fantastic and so quintessential in cinema. So. By all on, means. On a personal note to me, I'm just feeling really, really bitter about this because um, this film, John, um, we suggested it in a poll to our Facebook group, UK Kaiju fans, and I wanted a bit of fan engagement and said, right, what film do you want us to review? Because uh, myself, Joe and Paul all got together at uh, Joe's and we're going to watch film together. And there were a couple of suggestions and one of them was this film. And jokingly, I suggested a really, really crappy Godzilla film from 2004 <sighs> called Godzilla Final Wars. And everyone's like, yeah, that film. I'm like, oh no, what have I done? And sure enough, it bloody won. And then it's the thought that we could have been reviewing this wonderful film with what, what did you say? Cowboys and dinosaurs. It, that is honestly a mashup, which I have never seen replicated. And I don't think anybody could hold a flame or a candle to Valley of Gorongi sense. That was just a great movie. Um, you mentioned earlier that he wasn't originally purple or blue. What color is he? He's kind of like a dark gray. So if, if you look at, um, off sort of Facebook or Twitter feed, you'll see um, the original uh, model there. But he's not—he's not really purple or um, or blue. It's, it's strange how in the film he comes out like that. Some of the prints, um, and when we looked at the Blu-ray when we were doing the commentary recording, Ray's house, he was—he was struck by some of the grading choices. Um, but I think he's great. I mean, he's kind of iconic in that color. But um, it was—it was not intended. You know, there, there was a very little latitude in, in what was called color temperatures. Mm-hmm. for grading photochemical films um, and wire removal wasn't possible and matte line removal wasn't possible so pretty much what you saw in your rushes or dailies the next day was pretty much what you got if you think of an old tv set when you could put the contrast and brightness up and down a bit and the color up and down a bit that's it so when you've shot something effectively that's what you can do in a laboratory in a in a, in a printer um, other than that you have to go back and reshoot so, you know, all the more amazing. You know, Ray did all this on his own. He created the puppets, did the animation, he shot things, he lit things on his own entirely up until Clash of the Titans. So 
it's 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 all the more remarkable. Yeah, as I say, I mean, there there are a few films that definitely stand out that Ray did a fantastic job on. But you know, like, again, all the lighting that went on with that, and, you know, back then I think it's like these halogen bulbs. He would have been sweltering there, and then it's just the sheer perseverance and like the checking of every single little feature that he changed. And I'm just thinking if I was to try and attempt something like that, I'd have to write all sorts of notes to myself because I'd be coming back the next day thinking, all right, what have I done? You know, it was, it was just such an art form. And I think just there's so much respect that I have for it and where the industry is now just simply because of him. Um, so other questions uh, that I had, um, what has been the most rewarding um, aspect of being um, involved with the, with the Diane Ray Harryhausen Foundation? Like, what is like the one thing if you could if you could pinpoint like a favorite memory or a favorite thing that you've accomplished to date? What would it be? Um, well, gosh, um, I mean, back in the day, it was the documentary that I made, or I, I sat down with Ray and recorded commentaries with him for all of his films shortly before he died because he'd only done it for about three or four of them. And he'd mm-hmm. done 16 films in total. And I said to him, why have you not done commentaries like Clash of the Titans, Seven Voyages Sinbad, Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger, Golden Voyages Sinbad? He said, because nobody asked me. <laughs> that's just, that's <laughs> a very typical response. <laughs> and, and I said, well, do you fancy? And he said, well, not really, because when he did a couple before, he was in a sound studio and it was all a little bit sterile. And I said, well, look, we could do it at home. Um, because I work with sort of award-winning cameramen and soundmen on my, my film and TV work, um, they can record really high-quality audio um, in a domestic situation. And he said, well, even if we did that, he said, I don't, I'm not sure I'd remember anything new. And in fact, I might be embarrassed by not remembering anything at all. I said, well, it's up to you. You know, you don't feel we have to. I mean, these will be donated to the Foundation's archives and no one need hear them. So he was kind of anxious about it. We worked backwards from his last film, Clash of the Titans. Um, anyway, we did it. So he loved it. And he remembered lots. It was like regression therapy. Oh, so cool. if, if I was to get your school reports out for you, oh. and played you a tr- track that was number one at the time and got you to eat your favorite crisps, <laughs> you would probably remember stories from school that you hadn't remembered until that time. So it's quite a classic um, psychologist sort of take on regression therapy. Anyway, it went very well and successful, so we, we kept doing them. And then we started to invite people to come and sit with Ray to chat with him. So Caroline Monroe, the actress, sat through Golden Voyager Sinbad because she was in that film. Yeah. And uh, different special effects people came for some of the others. And the great film director, John Landis, sat in <gasps> for Mighty Joe Young. So uh, John's a good friend of the foundation, and he ended up being one of the five film directors, five famous film directors, who contributed to the forward in my new book, Harryhausen, The Lost Movies. So, you know, to, to sort of pick one cherry from the tree and say this was the greatest thing, you know, meeting John Landis and becoming good friends with him over the years, that's been marvellous. Um, because as a director, I don't normally work with other directors. So it's good to meet people like John Landis and the others that are in the book. Um, it's, most of it's been a gateway through, through Ray to get to these people. So, you know, the commentaries is a high point, meeting the people, writing this new book. Um, and you got to watch created... Ray's movies with him? How cool is that? Oh, <laughs> well, you know, depending on what kind of version you're watching, you could be quite critical of the 
of the uh, the transfer or the print. Um, he, he was very much a, a, of the old school that you should show the picture as clean as possible. So some film institutions feel that once it's on film, regardless of how it looks, once it's on film, that's the real deal. Whereas I think Ray would approve of these 4K scans on, on DCPs, on digital cinema prints. Um, but yeah, it was fascinating because he would make the most um, interesting comments. Um, so he would nitpick and, and, things and you were like, why on earth did you pick oh, yeah. up on that? <laughs> awesome. Yeah, you know, because it's always hard looking at your own work. If, you know, you guys, if you're, if you're working creatively and you look back at something, you might think it was better than you remembered or, or you might feel embarrassed to watch it in a room full of people. Um, but, you know, Ray recognized these films were important to him. But I think what surprised him more than anything was how more and more significant they came to people making films currently. So, sadly, when Ray died in 2013, George Lucas said, without Ray Harryhausen, there would likely have been no Star Wars. So, you know, people think of Star Wars as changing the landscape, but actually it was Ray Harryhausen's films influenced that landscape change in the 70s in the first place. You know, James Cameron, Peter Jackson, Terry Gilliam, these are all people who who think positively about Ray's work and and, and say that it was an inspiration for them to pursue filmmaking. Uh, in the Lost Movies book, then, we some, we've done something very different. So rather than have the usual forward from a well-known filmmaker who says, when I saw this film, it changed my life and I became a filmmaker, you know, Harry Housen fans would have read those forwards before. So we have five directors in the book. Uh, John Borman, who people might not normally associate with uh, Ray Harryhausen. Uh, Mike Hodges, who directed Flash Gordon. Nicholas Meyer, Star Trek II, The Rafa Khan. Guillermo del Toro and John Landis. And they all reflect on their own lost films and lament Ray's as well. And they exclusively reveal, in some cases, films they tried to make and uh, and, and didn't. So I'm so excited to read this book. I'm, I'm really stoked. Please order it now. <laughs> so, okay. So you bring up a great point. So obviously, you know, the foundation, you're always looking for funds for people to, you know, get involved, to donate, so to speak. Safe fans out here, like they absolutely love your idea. Like within my lifetime, I want to visit, you know, the Ray Harryhausen Museum and I want to see the 4K, you know, restoration. And I want to, I want to go to this film school that you that currently are now in, in, you know, like dream. They're in the aether. How can they support the cause? Like what different ways can they come out and get, you know, people motivated to do this? Ramble a few off and we'll get a few spirited folks joining in then. Well, you know, the, the best kind of way is, is to be a positive audience and to buy the books and say you like them, leave good reviews and, you know, in chat rooms talk about wanting to get things remade. Um, donations on their own won't do it because it needs to be such a significant amount of money. You couldn't really ask the public to donate. You know, you couldn't do like a um, Just Fund Me page for a couple of hundred million, you know, to get forced into the Trojans made. It, it needs to be more at the consumer level. If there's enough of a consumer interest in what we're doing and what we're talking about, then those people who make decisions at that high level will look and think, ah, this could be what we're looking for. So because say like, some studios, some studios are very busy with franchises. Others are very franchise poor and are currently looking. Just to make sure I understand you, John, you're saying that rather than looking to kind of um, a handful, a few dozen pledges, just that would not cut it. It's about appealing to the masses that you actually need kind of a force of people consuming um, the literature that's coming out and basically a continued interest 
um, in Harry Harrison's world. Is that right? That's right. It needs to be more like a political movement. Yes. You know, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. For this I understand. Change, yeah. We need the this sort of momentum of people saying we want to see this back again. We want to see how it would look if it was redone. Yeah. Uh, okay. And we have some ideas about how to answer the question about stop motion versus CG and so yeah. on. Um, so you know that is a such a big conversation to have. It's not something we can do case by case. But people can make their contribution, even if it's just buying the book or leaving a positive review. Or, you know, when Star Trek was cancelled in America on television, there was an enormous letter writing campaign that was organised with various fan groups. And that was part of the reason why the Paramount Network decided to bring back Star Trek Phase 2 to launch a new television network in the mid-70s. That eventually became what we know to be Star Trek The Motion Picture. But it was fan interest and fan pressure. You know, the network saw it for what it was. It was an inbuilt customer base. Fans have yeah. power, and uh, you've created a wonderful segue for me. So um, for myself, John, um, I'm a middle school teacher in Northumberland, and I teach a wonderful age group, which is nine-year-olds to um, 13. And a lot of um, our listeners are my school pupils, so many of them will be unaware of Ray Harryhausen's works. If you had to select three films that you'd recommend to them, as brand new viewers, what would they be and why? What's your upper age group? My, my upper age group, uh, 12 to 13. 12 to 13. I, I only ask because we, we had a screen in Clash of the Titans recently at BFI about three or four years ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> people were quite terrified. Yeah, a little bit scared. Um, okay, so like so year, year seven, year eight, I generally teach. I teach in the upper part of um, middle school. Okay. Well, Clash of Titans is a good one because it's 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 a strong story and it's quite visual yeah. and it has lots of special effects happening in it. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, my favourite is the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Um, it's it's the most mystical of all of Ray's films. It's the most satanic, and I think it has some of the most interesting acting as well. So those two, and then as a um, First Men in the Moon, I think, which is an unusual Harryhausen film. It's unlike any of the others, and it's it's shot in a different format as well. So they're probably a good three to introduce people to. And uh, one is based on a, a well-known literary source. So it's H.G. Wells's First Men in the Moon. Yes, and that that's those those three are probably a, a good good starting point. That's brilliant. Thank you. We'll take our second break, and when we return, we'll be rounding off for the evening. Thank you, everyone. Hey, friends. This is Cam, one of the hosts of the Gamer Heroes podcast. We really hope you're enjoying the show you're listening to right now, and if you are, please consider becoming a patron of the Heroes Podcast Network at patreon.com slash heroespodcasts. Your support would genuinely mean the world to us, and would allow us to cover hosting costs for the website, get new equipment and software, and even make it out to different conventions and events to meet you, our loyal listeners. All Patreon tiers will get you access to the Patron Lounge and Slack, which will allow you to chat and interact with your favorite HPN hosts. On behalf of everyone here at HPN, thank you all so much for your continued support. We really couldn't do any of this without you. Hello and welcome back to Kaiju Curry House with Paul, Joe and Alex. I'm John Walsh and I'm from the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. Thank you so much for uh, your time this evening recording. It's been an absolute pleasure talking about your, your latest book, which... Listeners, when you hear this, the book might be sold out. 
So we are going to be putting so many posts out on Facebook. It Joe bought all the copies. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't need any more publication, uh, publicization because it's doing so well. But it, it's just fantastic to see so much hype about it. We've been discussing your appearance um, at Forbidden Planet, we uh, which was last Sunday on the fifteenth of September. We have been discussing your recommendations of films. You've gone into a little bit of the quirky personality of Ray Harryhausen himself with. Uh, banana cake was it banana bread you said yeah banana cake that's right banana cake and i think for me the the highlight of this evening was um that auspicious um look in the phone book that you had and the fact that you were able to find his number and just call him up and i think it's it's just there is something magical in that within itself just that's wonderful kind of how a friendship formed from such a simple kind of route and being a bit sentimental but um paul can you take the lead on the final part of this episode? Because I'm sure that you've got some questions for John. Absolutely. Um, as everyone knows, I'm more of the um, the, the modern movie guy. So while I have nostalgia for the, the stop motion and for suitimation, I very much embrace the CGI future that is here. And so, John, I just wanted to ask you, um, with these lost films or um, lost movies from your book, and if they're going to be potentially made or old films remade would you want them in cgi or stop motion or some sort of blend of the two well it's the question we most get asked so we did comic-con for the first time in 2018 uh, san diego comic-con and uh, we had a, a really good response because we were quite anxious to think would young audiences be interested in what would they want to know and that's when we first announced the uh, the possible um bringing to the screen of force of the trojans and then the very next question people would ask is, will it all be stop motion or will it have to be computer graphics? And given the amount of money that would be needed to mount that size of production, you'd have to recognise that there is an audience out there who doesn't know and who doesn't care what stop motion is, who Ray Harryhausen was, and just wants to see a film. Because if you're not coming to see this, you might be going to see Ant-Man and the Dustman or whatever it's going to be called next. <laughs> so, you know, you have to recognise that there is an audience who are quite blinkered and will see a film and forget it. And they will be the foundation of the cash that you'll need to, to go into the black of the box office. But in, in order to answer the, the critics who say, well, you can't make a Harryhausen film without stop motion, we've, we've, I've blended together the story that was originally written in 1984. We've stripped it down. I've created a slightly new screenplay, which keeps all of Ray's creatures and what we will probably do if everything is, is, is um, agreed, and so far this seems to be what everyone's happy with, is that the final showdown will be between a digital creature and a stop-motion one. <gasps> wow. That's amazing. That's all. So that will be decided in the ring where it should be decided. <laughs> so this, the, again, we were subjected it's by fan walls. vote yeah. to Final Force, and... Um, so I, I'm not. I, you don't need to watch this movie, John, by any means. But what they did oh. in Final Wars, so there was a computer-generated Godzilla that attacked New York, and that was from the 1998 film. And then they had the traditional Man in the Suit Godzilla, and they had the Man in the Suit duke it out with the CGI one, and the CGI one naturally lasted all of four seconds. But it was very satisfying to see, and I'm glad that we're going to get a chance to see something similar potentially in a new film. Just like that. That was such a great moment. But I love the idea of, of a CGI uh, kicking off with a uh, stop motion 
character. That is so cool. That would be yeah. great. And I, I would love to see that take place. Yeah, we want to see that. We want to make that happen. We're going to be buying lots of copies of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, that's a good start to it. I mean, uh, we, we were talking in the break about um, about other other advances and, and Jurassic Park and so on. And, you know, when Clash of the Titans came out in 1981, Ray sort of felt that maybe his time um, was limited because special effects were moving on. But really, stop motion never went away. And I'm kind of hopeful that you know, audiences will not only tolerate it, they'll have to really embrace it and enjoy it. And who knows, if, if Force of the Trojans really works, then the next one after that, the next film to be remade from, from Ray's book of lost films, could be fully uh, stop motion. Yeah, it can kickstart yeah. a whole um, wave of them, couldn't it? I mean, if, if a company came up, I mean, would, would, I mean, would, could someone come along and, and almost buy the rights? Like, could, could Legendary come along and just say, we want that catalogue of movies? Would, would you want them to? Or would you want you to? Yeah, is a good question. Yeah, I mean, yes is the answer to both. So <laughs> we, we, we're, we're happy. We have a an open dance card. We're willing to, to, to do the quick step with, with pretty much anyone who's got a big enough checkbook. Yeah. I right, mean, Joe? at the end of the day, this, this needs to be financially viable, doesn't it? Of course, yeah. It does, you know. Yeah, and it needs to be from someone who's, who's, who's serious about doing something on a large scale. And there are quite a few players out there who are looking to do something which which is challenging the franchises that seem to be dominating. Um, That's not to take anything away from superhero films. You know, I'm a big fan of of superhero films, have been since I saw Superman the movie. Oh, great, great call out. Favorite superhero movie. I'm from Kansas. Thank you. (laughs) Here's here. Since you guys like superhero films and you haven't read my book, um, hopefully this will get the same response as it got Comic-Con. I said to them in the room, and remember there's boys and girls all dressed up as like... uh, Red Sonja and Spider-Man and so on. I said to them all, perhaps the most surprising for the people in the room, Ray turned down in 1984 the first Marvel's movie. Oh, oh really? Yep. Good call. Stan Lee wrote the first screenplay for an X-Men's movie and sent it to Ray and discussed the possibility about doing the special effects with Ray Harryhausen in 1984. What character wow. would that have been, if you don't mind uh, no, answering that why, question? No, why, why did he turn it down, is the question. That, that's in... <laughs> well, it's, I could tell you it was in the book. Um, ah, he turned yeah. David Lynch down the same year. So, you know, it was interesting who he turned down and why. Um, and to read some of the correspondence, well, it's quite interesting. It, was it to do with their preference on banana cake? Like, did, did he sort of... Was that the, was no, that the litmus no, test? No, I mean, it was... It was more of a career kind of shift. I mean, Ray wasn't really a gun for hire by this stage of his career, but uh, it was interesting to see what he what he turned down. I mean, he he got a phone call at Christmas 1975 from Delo De Laurentiis, and uh, he was about to remake a famous Hollywood monster movie with what would have been and what still is one of the biggest budget remakes of a monster movie of all time. Was this King Kong? Of it was King Kong. Yeah, that's right. So. Um, you know, De Laurentiis did what I did, just picked up the phone and rang Ray directly at home mm. and spoke to him and they had a discussion. And this was Christmas 75. And Ray was really enthusiastic. He tried to secure the remake rights for King Kong himself in the 1960s through Hammer Films. Mm. And so, you know, it's exciting. Paramount have greenlit it. It's got a very big budget. There's lots of interesting people on board. Jeff and Bridges. said to Ray, <laughs> hmm? Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges, uh, Jessica Lange, 
um, James Grodin. There was interesting kind of cast and crew coming together. So Ray said to him, you know, how, you know, this is marvellous. You know, when, how, how long have we got to make the picture? And uh, De Laurentiis says, we need to be in theatres in 12 months. It's like, oh, you know, it would take 12 <laughs> months for Ray just to prep and do drawings and do location and recce and background plates. No way with the amount of screen minutes needed for a character as complex as that and it's so dominant in the film. Well, it it does suffer because the I think I don't want to necessarily detract from the film, but the places where it stumbles, I think it's because of the lack of stop motion magic because in the original you have that fantastic brontosaurus, the stegosaurus, the tyrannosaurus, and in the Kong on the Skull Island in that remake, you have a large snake which isn't necessarily done the best, unfortunately. And I think that that's a major stumbling point because that snake isn't believable. It doesn't even move right. So No, but I think you know, on the plus side, it's a different looking Kong. Um, I think the interaction between Kong and the live action works quite well. The, the, the robotized hands, they were particularly effective. I thought that, that worked it quite did, well. It did win its Oscar for special effects, did it not? It did. Yep. It did, yeah, but controversially, controversially because... Um, the young man in the monkey suit was Rick Baker. Um, but the, the Oscar really kind of went because De Laurentiis, during the, what's called the Oscars Corridor, when it's the lead-up to the awards, he pushed the fact that they built a 50-foot robot Kong as being the solution to the special effects, as being present throughout the film. And he's like, that, that robot Kong thing, which is bizarre looking with its massive shoulders, appears for like 30 seconds or a minute right at the end during the Petrox sequence. Is that Mechanicong? No, it's its own thing, Alex. You got to see it. And a lot of Academy members thought that they were voting for a robot that was in most of the film. So <laughs> on the day after they were awarded the Oscars, some people like Jim Danforth, who was a special effects supremo, was going to send his membership back because he said it's a disgrace. They shouldn't have won in that category because it's basically a man in a suit. Man in the monkey suit. So, very controversial win for King he's, Kong. He's an ape now. Come on now. He's an ape. He's an ape, <laughs> not a monkey. But I, I'm just quoting Jim Danforth. I don't think of him as a... But I like that film. It's a great film with lovely score by John Barry. It's, it's a favourite of mine. It does have a great score. It does, yeah. It's only done up by the sequel, honestly. <laughs> but that, you know, Ray turned that film down. That's in the book as well. So, it's, it's fascinating to see... Um, and another film that you guys might like, um, and it sort of falls into the uh, kaiju sort of area, is The Land of Time Forgots. I love that movie. That's a classic. I, oh, yeah. Ray should have done that. Ray, what were you thinking? He, well, I, what were they thinking asking him? Because I don't think they really would have had the money. They did have yeah. puppet dinosaurs no. in the end. So, no, 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 they didn't. But it would have been amazing to see that. That's a movie... I would love to see that story, that that book, well, the three books that uh, are tied together. Um, that's a fantastic plot, and it's, it's a story just begging to be made in its entirety. Because what we see in that film is only the first of the three of the three books. So good. I'll tell you what, though, going back to something that uh, you originally said to start this off of race saying no or potentially working on things. If I was going to have stop motion in a film and say Marvel approached, you know, a stop motion artist, I would do devil dinosaur and moon boy that Jack Kirby threw out. Have, have any of you heard of that one? 
No. No. Not I. No. Okay. (laughs) All right. So this is, I mean, this is, again, right up the alley of a Harryhausen-type plot, but it is... uh, it's an alternate world. The first proto-humans are coexisting with dinosaurs. One of them saves a dinosaur from a fire. Um, It's a bright red Tyrannosaurus Rex, and it just kind of imprints on them. They have all sorts of wild hijinking adventures, all the while this humanoid is riding on his shoulders, and it's just... It's fantastical, but it would be amazing to have with those old, I'm not going to call them old school, but those fantastic um, stop motion effects because Devil Dinosaur himself, the original one that Jack Kirby drew, looks dead on. Like you could put him and Gwangi next to each other and they'd be so close. It's just Devil Dinosaur is scarlet red. But I think that if Marvel were to do that, Marvel, if you're listening, that would be a perfect opportunity. Well, Marvel, if you're listening, read the <laughs> yeah. book first. Read the book. When you get through the 80 unmade films, Marvel, in my book, by all means. But uh, please, come to my book first. Oh, yeah. Well, goes without saying. Let's see all the stuff that Ray came up with. But, um, yeah, that would be one that, that would be up my wish list. If Ray mm. could have done that, you know, that would have been cool. Because it would have been about the time period where he was active doing films as well, that that first came out. But... Anyways, I think that we uh, have reached our time limit, more or less. Yeah, we have indeed. I think, like, a, a quickish question, John. Um, what have you got planned for the Ray uh, Harryhausen Foundation? What have you got planned for, say, the next 12 months? What's on the horizon? Well, it's Ray's centenary next year for 2020, and we have a major exhibition taking place at the National Gallery of Scotland, where the entire collection... I booked my, I booked my tickets. I'm so excited. Excellent. Well, do let us know when you're coming so we can... Uh, 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 opening, di- opening day. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, we we'll, um, we must get some pictures together for our Instagram and everything else. And you can be maybe appear on our podcast, which would be fabulous. Yes, please, sir. That would be fantastic. So Thank you very much. We have that. Vanessa is writing a book herself, Vanessa Harryhausen, and it's going to be her father's story in 100 Objects, so Harryhausen 100. Um, we're, we've got some other film projects possibly coming along. There might actually be, and I can't really talk too much about this because I was told on Sunday I can't talk too much about it, but there might be a film of the book. So we might be doing a film of uh, Harry House and the Lost Movies. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Guys. That, that sounds really good. Um, right, starting off with myself, if nothing else... I'm going to throw out a film for you. Uh, the film is 1940, The Thief of Baghdad. And that was a film that really captured my imagination as a young boy. And have, have any of you seen it? Yes, absolutely. Alexander Corda, fabulous movie, yes. Yeah, it, it's it's a wonderful film. And there's a, a really sexy but terrifying statue that comes to life in it that really really uh that that's harrowing cinema it's it's a wonderful sequence but it's 1940 and it's aged very very well it's phenomenally good so that's me signing off paul if nothing else yeah well going in line with our our uh, topics today i'm going to recommend jason and the argonauts as my favorite harryhausen film simply for that um skeleton fight which watching as a child was just not not quite terrifying but it was incredible and you know the effects the the music everything about that 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 fight scene was just incredible and i still love it to this day so i would just say either watch the film or just find on youtube that clip of the the skeleton warrior battle and and i would add sorry if we're going like harry recommendations um 
watch Clash of the Titans for the simple fact that Maggie Smith in a toga, pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. No, like, seriously. Yeah, yeah, I went there. Okay. Oh, dear. Joe, if nothing else. Right, so there we go. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and say uh, buy Harryhausen the Lost Movies by John Walsh. Uh, it is currently selling for £19.40 on Amazon, and I have just noticed it also is offering free delivery. So All right. Hey-ho, go for that. Um, Absolute steal. In- incredible steal. And the thing is, is that all of Harry, all the books on the subject skyrocket in value if they don't get another printing. So get it while it's there. You're supporting a good cause too. It's worth it as we've discussed through here. To give a shout out of a Harryhausen film, um, I'm going to go ahead and recommend The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. If you're a parent with kids of any age, they will enjoy that film. Maybe not necessarily too little, but my daughter's five, and she absolutely loves it. So, and my serious recommendation for a Harryhausen film, it's uh, Mysterious Island. Is that about 1961? About that? That's right, yeah, 61, right? 62, something like that. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's my favourite Harryhausen film. I absolutely adore it. Um, I love the big sort of chickeny bird that kind of comes out. That, that the was... Fororacus? Yeah. Fororacus, yeah. that's that right. It is. No, I, I think it's a wonderful film, and uh, I think it needs more love. It's uh, one of the less uh, well-sung films um please john if nothing else fire away well for me um from the harryhausen films it has to be the golden voyage of sinbad um i was i was old enough or young enough to see it in the cinema when it came out um so that had quite an effect on me i was very young and i've since worked with the uh, the actor who played the villain in uh, golden voyage of sinbad uh, he secured as a result of being in that film a part which has um which has cemented his legend in television history. It was Tom Baker who was cast as Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I will take this as a personal opportunity to give a shout out to my cousin, um, Neil Cole, who is based up in Allendale in Northumberland. And he um, independently runs the Museum of Classic Science Fiction, which is dedicated to Doctor Who and classic science fiction. So, John, if you ever get yourself up to the northeast, I'd be delighted to take you there in person to show you around the museum. It's a date. I would like that very much. He also restores uh, the Doctor Who artifacts as well. Yes, he has. Does a good job. He's converted his Georgian cellar into a a giant Doctor Who uh, TARDIS. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, thank you, everyone. It's been an absolute pleasure tonight. Um, I am signing off. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Goodbye. Thanks for listening, everybody. And as always, keep it kaiju. Well, that wraps up another episode of Kaiju Curry House, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. Don't forget, you can find us on social media. We're at UK Kaiju on Twitter or Facebook groups UK Kaiju. Join in, have fun, keep it kaiju. See you next time. Discount Tire, you can shop online and get the same trusted advice you get from the stores. Then just book a time that's convenient for you. When you get to the store, you can stay safe with a new touchless experience. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of. 
It's a new year, which means new reasons to stop by QT, like drinks to wash out the taste of last year. I need more. And fresh snackles, worth breaking a resolution. Pizza has tomatoes, so technically, it's a salad. Want to binge a new show? We've got plenty to snack along with it, like our new cheesy mac and cheese. Wow, it's like my wife's, but even cheddar. Up top. This is the time for new beginnings, and it starts at Quick Trip. QT, more than a gas station.